What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. So tell us about who we're interviewing today. Well, today, Farah, we're interviewing Colonel Lucy Giles, who I actually first heard on Desert Island Discs just after Christmas. So she genuinely is a bona fide celebrity. Um, and we actually interviewed her right in the middle of uh, that really tough post-Christmas lockdown. I remember that because you actually texted me saying you loved her music choices on Desert Island Discs. Exactly. Anybody who starts with Metallica on Desert Island Discs is a hero of mine. Well, as you said, we recorded that in the middle of lockdown, but now things are finally, finally opening up. So what are you most looking forward to? I think I'm most looking forward to not wearing a mask. So just doing everyday things without wearing a mask is going to be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to going to the theatre. I can't pretend to be somebody who goes to theatre all the time, but I used to go reasonably regularly. If you go to a great play without a mask... It's an absolutely wonderful experience. And somewhat controversially, uh, I think I'm looking forward to shaking hands. I think I'm just going to stay with the elbow bumps and forever. <laughs> I think what I'm actually looking forward to is meeting people without having to have that awkward, are we shaking, fist bumping, elbow prodding? Just meeting people in a normal way, whatever that is, is what I'm looking forward to. Well, on that note, I know you like your personal space. So let's talk about the greeting of kissing. Are you going to go back to kissing people when you meet them? No, it's brilliant. The best thing about COVID is it's got me off the hook having to hug and kiss people when I meet them. I honestly, that's a, I remember when I first experienced that when I moved to London, I found it very odd. So now I've got a perfect excuse not to. But you're from the North. Do you think it's more of a Southern thing? I think it is, yeah. Certainly that was my experience when I moved down, yeah. I thought it was like really peculiar kissing people who you didn't know when you met them for a meeting. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. 
In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who's doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. I'm delighted today to be joined in this episode by Colonel Lucy Giles. She's the first woman to take on the prestigious role of being president of the Army Officer Selection Board, which, as the name suggests, makes her responsible for officer selection in the British Army. And previously, she was the first female college commander in the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst's 200-year history. She has served in over 20 countries, including South Africa, Bosnia, East Timor and Sierra Leone. And for our UK listeners, she's also appeared on the iconic Radio 4 programme Desert Island Discs, where, and in a choice that clinched it for me, her first record was by Metallica. Colonel Lucy Giles, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a delight to be here on No Bullshit Leadership. In three words, describe your leadership style. Inclusive, compassionate, purposeful. Which leader do you most admire? Could be alive, could be dead. Do you know what? I'm going to say my daughter. Amazing. Why? Because I just am constantly amazed with her resilience because both her parents are in the army. The traditional ones are people who've got lots of life experience, perhaps, and are in positions of authority or management, etc. But I think it's, it's sometimes the unsung heroes that are the best leaders. They're the ones that get things going yeah. and keep things moving behind the scenes. And I've seen how she is with her younger brother and how she deals with her mum and dad. Is she in charge at home, is she? She's the catalyst that makes things happen. Everybody says it's probably me, but actually she's the person, I think, that uh, holds us all together and enables us to be who we are. Fantastic. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? The best advice I think I've been given is to learn from your mistakes. Yeah, well, we might we might come back to some of those if you don't mind later on. Um, and what's the best decision you've ever made? To stay in the army when I was about to go because somebody was making my life a bit challenging. So I was going to leave and run away from it and I faced it head on. What was the way you persuaded yourself? How did you come to that decision? Because I didn't want anybody else to feel like I did under that style of leadership. So the only way I could address it is to face it head on and challenge it and I'm the one now as the full colonel in the British Army and he's left. I like that and and the hardest decision you've ever made maybe it was the same one? Well the hardest decision I think is removing somebody from the commissioning course because you know that you were taking their future away from them that they had visualized but actually it was an easy decision because the metrics that we used were were reasonably you know we were on firm moral moral grounds, Um, but it still doesn't make those conversations easy with the individuals. Santos' motto is serve to lead. What does that mean to you? I think serve to lead is a good way of encapsulating the role of the army officer in the the modern age. And actually, it has a, a link to our past as well as our future as well. It's about that selfless commitment. It's about being able to lead your people, um, engender trust um, and uh, focus on something uh, with purpose, which is goes back to Mm. the quick fire round um, about being purposeful as as a leadership style. So serve to lead is the bedrock. and, And I think it's the moral compass that keeps us heading in the right direction as as the officer corps. 
Will you tell us a little bit about your current role? So what does your current role entail? Well, my current role is selecting and, well, I should say my current role is assessing and selecting our future leaders in the British Army. But interesting, the nuance is that we're looking to uh, people as to whether they can be trained to be an army Mm. officer, not necessarily the finished product. So the unique thing about being at the Army Officer Selection Board is we capture observed evidence from what we see, what we hear, and and some of the other testing we do. We pull that together to understand where people are at 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 that moment in time. But then we juxtapose it with a bit of their background to understand where their potential could be in the future. If something we're seeing is inherent and you can't do much with somebody who's got perhaps a um, a, a, a brain that's hardwired in a certain way or a character that's yeah. already formed that can't be, can't be developed. So we look for all of that. Um, and my role is to preside over all of the types of boarding that we do. And what drives you? Do, do you feel like you're a role model in the army? Or outside of the army as well, by the way. I mean, not just in the army. Two parts to that, really. The, the first one in the army, I, I never thought of myself as a role model because I saw myself as being the same as everybody else um, when I was growing up through, even though as a female in the army, you're in a minority. Um, but it was when I was at Sandhurst and I was uh, queuing for my boots, I, I was next to some girls in the queue. They both um, were looking at each other, giggling in, in a way, and, and asked me if I was the new college commander. And I said, yes, I am. And they were very excited because they hadn't seen anyone in my rank or doing this kind of role. Um, and actually, if you think about it from their perspective, it was quite a big deal. For me, it didn't seem a big deal at all. But I realized then it was a bit of a light bulb moment that no matter what I really wanted to do, I think I had a responsibility to be. Mm. Uh, to champion that group um, and show what can be achieved if you put your mind to it and if, if it's something that you really want. As an outsider, my perception um, is that leadership in the army is unlike any other career, certainly a, a career outside of the military. Leadership can be literally a matter of life or death. What does it feel like to, to know that lives might depend on the decisions you take? You take your responsibility as as a leader or a commander or a manager, whatever, however you want to view your role. Mm-hmm. But you take those responsibilities in the context in which you're working really seriously. Now we're in this interesting, I think, role where you are training really hard to do something that you hope you never do because. Mm-hmm. If, we're, if we, we train to the maximum and to the worst case mm. scenario, which is war fighting, kinetic action, bombs and bullets, um, with, with the intention of destroying an enemy, uh, the Queen's enemy. But you, you obviously don't want to be doing that because that, you know, it means uh, mm. there's been a serious problem out there going on. Um, but in the context in which I've been working in my career, if you look at, um, I did three tours of Bosnia. I did um, Sierra Leone, East Timor, um, and uh, I was working in Northern Ireland, which was there in a high threat environment, and uh, other places, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq on, in, a, in certain roles. You have that constant threat that somebody is trying to kill you or that you are in an environment in which you are, you are a legitimate target according to the rule of law. So... When you are leading people in that context, you are very mindful 
that you're are putting them in harm's way or you um, are, are potentially in harm's way yourself, which is why the motto serve to lead is a good reminder for you to constantly refer back to um, to make sure that you you do the best you can to mitigate that and, and keep people out of harm's way whether that be in making sure the training is correct, maybe making sure the drills are uh, adhered to. That's how I would answer that one. It's, it, it is, uh, what drives me is the sense of purpose. What drives me is doing the right thing. And what drives me is looking after my soldiers, my men and women that I would be commanding in those contexts. And it's not just obviously war fighting. There's a whole host mm. of other areas when I was in Cumbria and did the foot and mouth support to uh, the, the then DEFRA who were leading that, you know, if, if we didn't get our PPE right, we were putting our yeah. people in harm's way. So you could, you can see it in, you know, across the yes. spectrum of context. Do you think there are some universal principles of leadership? Do you know, I think there are, and I think it ranges from, having a growth mindset and, and curiosity and never stop learning, that kind of approach. The minute you start putting attributes to it, it becomes mm. tricky because yes. it depends on the context in which you're working, really. A question I get asked quite often is, is, is about being liked. Maybe that's good. Jokes aside, but do, do you think it's necessary to be liked to be a leader? That's such a good question. And I think the answer is, no, you don't need to be liked, but I think it helps. And therefore, if you are, um, because sometimes you've got to make tough decisions and people will respect you for taking a, uh, you know, a particular stance, but they won't, if you can be the nicest person in the, uh, you know, can be quite jovial, great to get on with, but if you can't do your core, but if you're not competent, Mm-hmm. If you can't behave in a certain way, then you'll lose the respect. So, yep. and, and I think some people do find that balance quite tricky, especially in other sectors, maybe, where they are transitioning from one level of leadership mm-hmm. to another without any kind of intervention. So, no, it's not necessary to be liked. Yes, it is necessary to be respected. And competent. <laughs> and competent, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely to that. Has leadership or the required leadership style in the army evolved over the time you've been there? I think it has. And the reason is in 2015, we codified uh, our leadership methods, way of doing business, ethos, whatever you want to call it, in a leadership doctrine, how we do leadership. But up until that point, we were quite, I think, we were quite complacent, even arrogant that um, because we're in the army, of course, we know leadership because, you know, we've got, we got Slim Montgomery, et cetera, you know, so, so of course we're brilliant. But nobody could articulate why or why people perceive it to be, you to be brilliant or whatever. Um, and so it was sort of left in an abyss. And, and um, because I was working behind the scenes a little bit, it took literally years to get to the point where we could have a physical booklet which could simply offer the guideline on how we needed to approach leadership and and it was therefore available to other organisations and sectors. And so what that looked like was framed along what leaders are, what leaders know, what leaders do and then how they do it. 
And that simple framework, therefore, then can offer that uh, uh, journey, leadership development journey across the, the breadth of the, the army, whether you're a soldier or you're a general. So it has evolved and we're, we're much better at it, at getting at it. women lead differently to men i mean i know for example there's been there's been a lot of debate during covid hasn't there about whether or not countries with women in charge have done a better job of it than countries with men in charge do you think women lead differently at least let's say i think there's a biology that means that we arguably think differently because our hormones are triggered differently our emotional state is different and as it is different for a a male brain or whatever if you Mm -hmm. want to look at it through that prism and um i do think that Therefore, that will bring different strengths to your leadership style when you need to draw upon them. So do they lead differently? Possibly. But that's got to be a good thing, I think. Now, that's why diversity is such an important theme throughout any organisation, least of all the army. You you know, if you've got people who bring something to the party because they think a little bit differently, and it may be because they have a, a, a different ethnicity, a different faith, different upbringing, different educational background, blah, 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 different gender. But the point is, is that they, they've come from a different thinking space and therefore they can bring something to the party. So do men and women lead differently? Possibly, but men and men lead differently. It depends on the person in the background. Let's talk about leadership a little bit more then. So can you tell us about one of the most difficult leadership decisions you've had to take whilst actually uh, in the field or in combat? Well, when I was deployed to Sierra Leone, um, and the context here is that, you know, a young corporal chef in the Sierra Leonean army had decided to, to form a coup against the then government. And part of the reasons for doing that is, uh, and one of the, the methods they used was to, to cut people's limbs off and hands off because the the slogan for the government was you have the the world in your hands or you have you you have work in your hands so so they made the connection that if they if they did long sleeves or short sleeves on the individuals in the in their in their homes that that was okay i mean the and they got young children to do the work it was pretty appalling to understand what the experiences that the the sierra leoneans had been going through so to go there into that mix at a time where the it, there was uproar in the international community was 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 fascinating, and I, and I went to one of the amputee camps and part of my role in that space was to, to show people why we were here. Why why was the British Army getting involved in trying to 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 to, to bring peace to that area or to that sector? Why why were we needed? And then when you visually see these people with such disabilities but interestingly a very um vibrant human spirit is it was it it does affect you and it it has lasting impressions so one of the the, the situations i found myself was i was in the amputee camp i was 
had uh, a team with me and unfortunately somebody had died in the camp and they wanted to remove the body and because this was a Muslim number of people there they were uh, needed to be buried within a certain time frame and in a certain way and uh, the problem is, is that morally I wanted to help them you know because you want to get involved and support them but it was just absolutely verboten as part of our mission that was out there. So that was that was the problem I found is that, I, you know, I wanted to be able to help, but I was not that was not part of my remit. We got round it by linking somebody else up and, and, and finding some money from somewhere to be able to allow this burial to happen in an appropriate manner for this elderly gentleman who died of natural causes there. And, and, and so, I, you know, the, the effect was achieved eventually, mm. but you, you feel a bit impotent to help when you're out there on the ground and they're begging you to, to do something. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, um, or at least try to imagine, goodness. I, I mean, one of the things that, that always amazes me is how much authority the military appear to give to people at such a relatively young age. So, you know, for example, my, myself, I, by the time I'd left university, I was sort of 24. And I, for the next 18 months, I kind of answered the phone and, you know, I, I don't know, sat and took notes in meetings. Whereas, you know, it, it, in the army, people at 24 can be given really quite large degrees of authority. I mean, uh, why do you think that we underestimate the capabilities of, uh, of young people or rather the army get it right? I, I don't know, actually. You're, you're right. I mean, I'm 25 years old. I was commanding a troop of 72 in, um, in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and, you know, having, you know, 70 men, most of them are older than me and well, a few of them younger, obviously, but, and you, you and you're all there and they're looking to you for decision-making and leadership, etc. you know, What's Troopy going to ask us to do next? So, so you're, you're absolutely right. But I think some of this comes down to what we, we need. And we know that the brain is still is forming until about 25, 26 years old. And, and in that space, people take more risks. So maybe it, mm. it is that at that younger age, you are more likely to take risks and this kind of lifestyle and vocation appeals. I'm possibly there. I might be doing a bit of psycho pop there, but you know, if you if you look at amazing entrepreneurs, it's it's done in the, you know it doesn't happen at fifty, unfortunately for no, me. No, but it but it but it's you know the entrepreneurial skills and that innovation comes at, usually at a, an earlier age because your brain's still sparking. Yes. I have to say, I, I do think about that quite a lot because I don't think my experience or, or our organization is different to, to any others. I mean, people go to university and they, they typically get a job and they, broadly speaking, get, you know, get put at the bottom of the organization and have to work their way up. Whereas in, in, in military of all, of, of all the different services, people are given a lot of authority at a, at a young age. And, and to me, that's proof that people can take an awful lot more authority and responsibility at a younger age than I think society often expects. I think you're absolutely right. And we do we do take them through um, both for the soldiers and for the officers. We do take them through quite a, a rigorous selection. Mm. Um, and, and then the training intervention that we have is is, is, is pretty rigorous. And we, we, we deliberately create a pressurized environments for people to then find themselves and be challenged. So I think that's uh, we set people up for success. I'm not sure we did it as well in the past but i think we we we've, we've got it right getting it right now and into the future the 
Omis, uh, um, I, I guess would, we would stereotype it probably, maybe unfairly, as, as a very masculine place. Um, certainly, that's been our, you know, th- th- that has been the case until relatively, I suppose, relatively recent history. Do you think the role of women has changed? role of women in the army has changed while you have been uh, in the army. And how do you see that that will both see, predict and hope that will evolve in the, let's say, near future? When I joined the army in uh, 1992, we just come out of a policy where if you were um, engaged to be married, you had to leave. And when I joined you, um, uh, if you were pregnant, you had to leave as well. And um, it wasn't until 2001 that we changed the rules on um, uh, homosexuality and being able to serve. So the policies have, I think, largely complemented broader societal changes. And in some cases, we've been on the front foot. So if you look at our approach to paternity leave and maternity leave, flexible working, those kind of things. It, it's so much better. But it, specifically with, with your question on the role of women in the army, uh, we had, again, in I think it's 2017, lifted um, the constraint on roles being, only certain roles being available to women. So now um, females, along with our, our male friends, can serve in every aspect of the um, army, um, including special forces as well. So, so there's no roles that are barred. Uh, our pay is the same. Um, maternity and paternity are viewed through the same lens. It, you know, it's, it, there is, there's been a huge change in the quarter of a century that I've experienced over a quarter of a century of, of, of service. What is the percentage uh, of men to women at the moment? Well, there's 11% women in the army. That's the, the, mm-hmm. the statistic that will be quoted. Um, the, the army is looking um, at raising, um, uh, has got various levels of ambition over the next few years to improve that um, percentage. Uh, so we're looking at 15% in 2030. I personally um, think we need to raise our levels of ambition because that will be the catalyst for change. But, you know, uh, the point is, is it's heading in the right direction. Mm. Do, do you, what, when you think of the barriers to women uh, joining, I guess, choosing and being selected first and, first and foremost? Uh, um, from my experience, it's because it's not perceived as a traditional role for a female, um, that's what people, it's not even on their radar as an option. Mm. So when I was going through school, it, it absolutely wasn't on, on the radar. So it just didn't even, you know, the, it wasn't even a conversation um, to, to have. And there was no reference point. I don't come from a military background. So it's just nothing that I thought of, really. And, and, and that would be the same for a lot of the other females that were, I was at school with. And it's quite interesting. I think there's still that perception there a little bit. Yeah. So that, that stops people or prevents people. The number of people I had contacting me after Desert Island Discs saying, gosh, that's not what I thought the army was about or I wasn't expecting that or you don't sound as though you're in the army. Those conversation was, was amazing. I mean, it's literally hundreds of people that came back with that feedback. How important is it um, in, in any context, really, it, it, to call out bad behaviour when you see it, however you define bad behaviour, or speak truth to power or to your peers? It's probably the single most important thing that we need to do 
um, as senior leaders in the army and um, to empower the, the troops to, to do that as well. I, I have a, a mindset personally where I'm, I'm open to feedback and criticism on a personal level and I welcome it. Um, that doesn't happen across the board, but it's happening more and more. And the, re the reason I think it's so important is that you, uh, uh, a lot of our behavior is learned over, over the years and um, you can lead, get into bad habits, microaggressive language, and you don't even mean it. And I think majority of the time, 99% of the time, the moments where I've called something out or I've said, hang on a minute, you know, is that it's not being deliberate. It's just people are not thinking. So what you're doing by calling out is you're raising into their consciousness. It can be one of the most difficult things to do because it takes a leap of courage and faith. I think it takes real courage to do, Lucy. And one of the things you talked about um, at the start was about the importance of building teams. Uh, and I think one of the things that defines, whether those are, you know, teams obviously can be sometimes very large. One of the things that defines teams for me is the culture. I mean, that, that's really, you know, the, the defining experience of any organization is the culture. Um, and I think, I think two, two things on what you the story you just told. First is, I think it, it's about setting a culture, about the only way you can create the culture you want is if you actually, you know, if you, when you see people diverting from it, you, you speak up. But also... I think you as the leader or you as a leader in that situation, your behavior is the most important thing in order to set the culture that you want going forwards, I think. 100%. And culture is a really interesting thing because uh, we talk about having a cultural change or wanting to adjust the culture. It doesn't happen overnight because you're having to change some heuristics some, and some inbuilt biases that have been there for years and years and years and some of the people so it's quite effortful and it and it takes a lot of work you can't just do a powerpoint and um and do some online training and expect it to happen it just doesn't work no, like that absolutely culture is nothing to do with powerpoints that's for sure and, and, and i think culture is everything to do with behaviors and, and first and foremost behaviors of the the the, the leader or the leaders well it, it's interesting because i was going to say chris that Part of that leadership um, doctrine that I was talking about earlier, um, one key bit, and it's that how they do it, that's, um, that is the new thing that I think the army has embraced, which is the leadership code. And that right. is all about behaviors. And okay. um, a lot of our training is um, diversity, inclusivity, and behaviors. And in yes. fact, our mandatory training that we do to keep on top of, to make people more aware in the conscious, stand fast, what I just said about changing culture, is, um, is now known as behaviours. It's not um, values and standards, it's behaviours. Yeah. Values and standards are, are just a list of words. You've got to live them and be seen to be living them and, and, and genuinely believe it in order for them to work. Look, if, if values for a particular organization work, great. But, but I think they're too abstract. They're just lists of words. Whereas I think behaviors are something that I can take and I, I can easily understand the things that I should or shouldn't be doing and encouraging or stopping in others. If you could give one piece of advice to the newly commissioned uh, Lucy Giles, whenever, however old you were, let's say 23 or however old you were, 24, what would that be? It would be... Be more confident of the person you are and can become. 
Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for your time uh, today, Lucy. And, you know, at the end of those five years, come and sort us out at Havas because we could do with some of your some of your straight talking, no nonsense leadership. So thank you so much. And uh, and so, so wonderful to meet you. Chris, it's been a delight to have this conversation. I felt so relaxed and I, I wish you and your listeners um, a very safe and happy 2021. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, follow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think and your review will help others find the show. I'm Chris Hurst and this is the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. The executive producer is Farah Jassat. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.